Over the course of the retreat so far, particularly during the first week, Greg and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about the various afflictive states of mind, these states that get in the way of seeing clearly, of insight. And if you can remember back perhaps to the first few days of this retreat, it might have felt like back then that was pretty much all that you were dealing with. And that seems to be a very common experience at the start of a retreat. And then over time, with this process of repeatedly showing up and making space and cultivating kindness and compassion, eventually something starts to shift. And if that's not true for you yet, don't worry, because there's still four days of this retreat left. And sometimes I wish we had some kind of I don't know, like an MRI or an X-ray machine that could take a snapshot of our minds so that we could have a more objective sense of what state we were in at the start of the retreat compared to the state that we're in now or perhaps at the end of the retreat. Because uh, based on our individual meetings with you, it feels different to Greg and I and hopefully to you too. And of course, it's not really accurate to talk about states because as we all know, our minds aren't fixed and static. It's a key insight to recognize just how changeable our physical and mental experiences are. But if we could somehow measure the overall balance of unskillful states relative to skillful ones, I'm pretty confident that we all could uh, point to a general decrease in afflictive states and an increase in skillful qualities over time, certainly of the longer arc of our practice. So tonight then I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the skillful qualities that start to emerge quite naturally in our hearts and minds once the hindrances have begun to diminish. And I'll be using yet another list from the Buddha's teachings that I know many of you have some familiarity with. That's the list of the seven factors of awakening or the seven enlightenment factors. This list appears under the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of dhammas, where it's uh, laid out as a kind of a counterpoint to the list of the five hindrances. So as I think you all know by now, the hindrances are the afflictive mental qualities that we need to learn how to release, whereas the awakening factors are skillful mental qualities that we want to help increase. And I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances, whereas there are seven awakening factors, so we have more of the good guys and the bad guys. And for some of you, this might be new information, so I'll just name what the seven factors are. And when you hear the list, you'll probably recognize that uh, on some level, these are qualities that you've already been developing. So these are the seven. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. 
I'll come back to each of them in a little bit more detail later on, but before we go there, I'd like to talk about them more generally in terms of their purpose on this path. So these seven factors are called the awakening factors or the enlightenment factors because when all seven of them are strong and in balance, they provide the optimum conditions for deep insights to arise, the kind of insights that lead to awakening. Awakening, also known as enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana, or nirvana, to use the Sanskrit word. So although nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what terms such as nibbana and even insight, vipassana, actually refer to. So to begin with the term insight, I think we've said before that uh, the word insight is the usual English translation of the Pali word vipassana, which literally means clear seeing, sometimes translated as seeing distinctly or seeing separately. And in some contexts, the word insight is used more technically to refer to insight into what are known as the three universal characteristics of experience that everything we experience is impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it doesn't have any inherent, unchanging essence. And I'll probably talk more about these three characteristics in another talk, because I don't want to overload this one with too many lists and technical terms. So perhaps a more accessible and directly practical definition of insight is one that the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea gives in his book, Seeing That Frees. He defines insight quite loosely as any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a a dissolution of or a decrease in dukkha, suffering. Any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution of or a decrease in dukkha. And I appreciate this definition because it gives us a way to understand whether something is a useful insight or not. If it, if it brings any decrease in dukkha, then it is. It reminds us that the point of all of this hard work is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some kind of esoteric experience. Yet this is a very common misunderstanding of what the practice is about, particularly when it comes to words such as awakening or enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana, and so on. These words can sound quite abstract, remote, distant, exotic, or perhaps even meaningless. For some people, there might be a vague idea of maybe getting there, wherever wherever that is, getting there at some point in the far distant future, but right here and now, those terms don't sound very relevant or appealing. For others, there might be a more definite sense that yes, Nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering, but to get there, it's going to be necessary to spend decades battling with the hindrances and the defilements and afflictive energies before we ever experience anything remotely like freedom. 
So either way, particularly in the beginning of the practice, it's common for people to have an unconscious belief that Nibbana is something remote and mysterious and perhaps not applicable to their own lives, and that it might be somehow presumptuous or even arrogant to think that it be something we could actually experience for ourselves. So for me, at least, it's been very helpful to hear teachers such as Joseph Goldstein talk about Nibbana in a much more accessible and immediate way as the heart-mind that is free from greed, free from hatred, free from ignorance. In other words, free from the afflictive energies that I spent so much time talking about over the last week. So in this definition of Nibbana, it's something that we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of the hindrances. And at first, these moments might be fleeting, perhaps just nanoseconds. But as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not some kind of big bang experience where we suddenly achieve some radical transformation and find ourselves in a permanent state of bliss. It's not a static state that we get, but a process that we're all going through. And that's partly why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun, and it tends to suggest that nibbana is a state, whereas awakening is a verb. It's an action that happens, or a process. A process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the skillful qualities, such as the Brahma-viharas and the awakening factors. So this understanding of nirvana as being a natural process and a natural human experience has been written about by Ajahn Buddhadasa, the famous Thai meditation master of the last century. And I appreciate the way he describes our practice as a process, a process of cultivating moments of what he calls temporary nirvana, until eventually these convert to complete nirvana. He says, Temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who would ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives them because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical nirvana keeps all of us alive and well and is a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality, that is to say we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desire. Whenever that happens, a little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. 
So I find that uh, quite encouraging that we have this natural orientation towards freedom and that we can experience these moments of nirvana. And so really our work during this retreat is to keep reorienting ourselves to those moments of freedom that Ajahn Buddhadasa is pointing to, those moments when the hindrances are absent and when one or more of the awakening factors are present. So all of the practices that we're doing here are in the service of this. And Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar-monk who we've talked about quite a bit, he's written a well-known book on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he points out that all of the practices within the four foundations of mindfulness are aimed at developing the seven factors of awakening. All those different techniques are ways of preparing the mind for the awakening factors to arise. And there are a couple of quotes from the suttas. There's actually whole um, books in the suttas that talk about these awakening factors. But uh, just a couple of samples that, that highlight the importance of developing the awakening factors. Practitioners, the seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. Emancipating means freeing. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. The second sutta is a bit more earthy. It says, Then a certain practitioner approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. A dolt is an old-fashioned word for a stupid or foolish person. And he goes on to ask, in what way, sir, is one called an unwise dolt? And the Buddha replied, practitioners, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. So there's a sense there that we're being offered something very valuable and we would be foolish if we didn't take advantage of it. So, if we're not going to be unwise dolts, we need to know when the awakening factors are present, which means we need to get familiar with them, to learn how they feel in the heart and the mind. And even though we might not yet know all of the factors in detail, it can still be helpful from time to time to just silently run through the list of the seven and to notice if they're present or not. We could even practice that right now. So as you're sitting here, I'll run through the list of the seven factors quite briefly, and you might just notice any responses that come up. Perhaps with some of them, there'll be a sense of recognition, whereas for others, more a sense of absence or perhaps confusion. It's fine. The invitation is just to notice whatever response there might be. So the first one, mindfulness. Is mindfulness present right now or not? Yes or no? And the answer will always be yes, because just by asking the question, we've already re-established mindfulness. We're no longer lost in whatever's going on. So that's an easy first success. The second factor is investigation. 
It was their interest and curiosity about my experience, or am I a bit zoned out? And again, just asking the question right there is itself investigation. The third factor is energy. How's the energy level right now? Am I sinking a little bit into dullness or revved up into restlessness or more balanced? And if so, how does that feel? The fourth factor is joy or rapture, rapt interest. What about joy? Can I find some trace of it in this experience right now? Or am I perhaps sitting here waiting for the talk to be over so I can go to bed? If joy is a stretch, is there anything at all that I can simply appreciate about my experience right now? And the fifth factor is tranquility. Is it present or not? Some degree of calm, the calm that I've been emphasizing in some of the guided meditations. The sixth factor is concentration, better translated as non-distractability. Is the mind focused, stable, undistracted? And then lastly, equanimity. Is there evenness of heart-mind, balance, acceptance, ease? Is it possible to stay steady in the middle, not pulled into wanting or pushed into not wanting? So that's a very brief overview of these seven factors. And when we run through the checklist like that, we might find that perhaps only one or two of them feel recognizable. Or even those may feel quite weak. But even this is useful information because the first step in cultivating them is to learn to recognize how they feel in the body and the mind. Because when the factors of awakening are present and strong and perfectly in balance, they help us see clearly and penetrate more and more deeply into the truth. And in the suttas, it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards liberation, towards nibbana. And that analogy of the river suggests that this is a natural process, that there's a natural flow of development of these factors. And at times we can experience them as a kind of positive chain reaction, similar to what I spoke of a few nights ago, where there's no need for an act of will, but wholesome states just begin to flow naturally one into the other. We do need to make some effort, though, to get the process started. And it's a, a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but that's why mindfulness is the first of these seven factors. Because first we need to know what's going on, to know if the hindrances are present or not. And if they are, sometimes just being able to know them and to name them helps to loosen the grip. Then we're in a better position for the awakening factors to come up. 
So mindfulness is the foundation of all the awakening factors and the development of the others is really dependent on mindfulness being there. And what makes mindfulness an awakening factor as opposed to just an ordinary quality of presence is that, as it says in the suttas, it's unremitting. Unremitting means continuous. And that's why Greg and I have been emphasizing the practice of mindfulness of in-betweenings. So really doing our best to maintain mindfulness throughout the day from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, through the formal meditation sessions, as well as all of our daily activities. And one analogy of the need for this continuity of mindfulness is uh, the metaphor of trying to boil water. So if we're going to cook pasta or potatoes or rice and we want to boil water, If we put the water in a pot on the stove and give it a blast for a few minutes and then turn it off and then walk away and come back half an hour later and give it another blast, turn it off, leave for 45 minutes, come back again, pretty obviously the water is never going to boil. So if we want boiling water, we need to have a steady flame, a continuity of heat. And if... To continue the analogy, if our practice is more like we come to one sitting and then we go nap for a couple of hours and then we go for a long rambling walk and read a bit and write a few pages in our journal and then race up to lunch and gobble our lunch so we've got time to have our post-lunch siesta, then we're probably not going to develop too much mindfulness. And without this foundation of continuous mindfulness, Our minds are very vulnerable to invasion by the hindrances, which leaves no room for the awakening factors to develop. So this first awakening factor has a very important role in letting us know what's going on in the mind. And then the next factor, investigation, investigation of dhammas, to give it its full title, is about... um, all the ways we experience the world. So the word dhammas refers to phenomena and it also refers to the Buddha's teachings. So this factor has a direct link to wisdom. It's knowing the nature of experience as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self, as I mentioned earlier. And it's also referring to the wisdom of knowing whether something is wholesome or unwholesome whether it leads to progress on the path or in the opposite direction. So one fairly simple way of practicing with this factor of investigation is using those three questions that I've offered a few times. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? And how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind Because just dropping in those questions can reveal the presence or absence of the hindrances. And if the hindrances are present, then we make the effort to help them release. So this factor of investigation then has a close relationship with the third factor of awakening, which is energy or effort, virya, as I spoke of a few nights ago. And I went into... Uh, very uh, quite in quite a bit of detail then so tonight just to reiterate that the energy that's being referred to here 
needs to be sustained and steady. In the discourses, it's described as unshakable. And when this factor becomes strong, it develops a kind of effortless quality. It's almost as if we're surfing a wave and the momentum of the meditation practice is just carrying us without us having to do much at all except keep paying attention. And because of this feeling of effortlessness, the next factor arises quite naturally, the factor of joy. The joy that's referred to here, though, is, isn't the kind of happiness that comes as a result of sense pleasures. It's a more refined mental type of happiness. And because of this, it's more sustainable than ordinary sense-based happiness. So when joy is present as an awakening factor, it can be sustained for hours, sometimes even days or longer, without much effort. And when this type of joy becomes steady and continuous and stable, it gives way to tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. And tranquility is a profound calmness of body and mind. It's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And because it's quite a refined and subtle state, it can at first take a bit of getting used to. Most of us are not used to this deep calmness. And because not much is going on, sometimes it can feel a bit spacey or unfocused. So I've noticed for myself a few times when I've been preparing these teachings on the seven factors of awakening, quite often when I'm running through the list, there'll be one of them that I um, leave out. And quite often that's tranquility. And I think it is because at least for me, it's a, a more subtle state. So if you're working with these lists, you might notice something similar for yourself that there's one that you more consistently tend to leave out. So often that's the one that perhaps needs a little more attention, more strengthening. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm, and it leads naturally into the next factor of awakening, which is concentration. And many uh, teachers these days are just naming that the English word concentration is not a particularly good translation of the Pali word samadhi because in English concentration has overtones of a kind of a forced and narrow or even fixated attention. So perhaps a more accurate translation might be indistractability, the mind that's not distracted or one-pointedness of mind, unscattered attention, unification of the mind. So most of you have had, at least in moments, some experience of the mind becoming a bit more concentrated, and what a relief that is. And the awakening factor of concentration does give our whole nervous system a rest, because we're not as stimulated as we are in daily life with all the contacts at all of the sense doors. So often this quality of concentration is experienced as very refreshing. It's sort of like a reboot for the nervous system. And then from that experience of concentration, the final awakening factor arises, and that's 
the awakening factor of equanimity. This is the mind that is perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not clinging to anything in the world and not rejecting anything. And Greg spoke quite a lot about that last night. So just to um, remind her that equanimity is not a state of disconnection. The mind that's resting in equanimity is fully aware of what's happening. It's alert and it's alive, but it's in a state of non-reactivity that allows for the deepest insights to arise. So that's a relatively brief overview of the awakening factors. And I'd like to speak a bit more generally now about some of the challenges that come up, that can come up when we're moving into uh, more wholesome mental qualities. Because after the mind has been secluded for some time, as it has been here for all of us on retreat, the hindrances do gradually weaken. And at times, they can disappear altogether. And at first, this can be a little disconcerting because it's as if we've got so used to wrestling with sense, desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. It's unpleasant, but at least we have something to keep us occupied. And then when those hindrances become less predominant, sometimes it can feel like there's nothing happening or even that we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. Sometimes this is because the grosser mind states, the defilements have fallen away, but our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice their absence or to notice the more refined mind states that have come up in their place, such as the factors of awakening or the Brahma-viharas or the spiritual faculties. So for some of us, when we start to move into these more refined states, we discover that uh, we're to some extent addicted to the drama of practice, to the highs and the lows. And we might discover that we're secretly searching for catharsis of some kind or craving intensity or even afraid of a more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So sometimes when the practice does settle into a more stable and quiet phase, we start to try to get some of that intensity back by pushing or forcing or striving in various ways. And as I mentioned a few uh, days ago, mainstream society does condition us to be constantly productive and doing things. So it's understandable that we would bring the same attitude to being on retreat this very results-oriented, driven kind of relationship to what we're doing. So we can, though, train ourselves to recognize how it feels to have a mind without lust or greed, without anger or fear, without delusion or ignorance. And the absence of those difficult mind states might not last very long, but when we're in them, those cycles of purity we can start to feel the loosening of some of the karmic knots that Greg mentioned the other night. And at times this loosening of the knots can feel more like unraveling or even falling apart. 
This is because our usual defense mechanisms and our personality habits and our self-protection strategies might be starting to dissolve a little and we have this feeling of being on shaky ground or in new territory. And I've noticed in those phases in my own practice that sometimes when I touch into some newfound spaciousness, there's almost like a backlash where a part of the mind goes into overdrive, almost like sabotaging the spaciousness by um, telling all kinds of ridiculous stories or getting lost in full-blown fantasies or creating imaginary doomsday scenarios. It seems like anything at all to interfere with this more open way of being. So just acknowledging that this phase of practice at times can be a little uncomfortable, as can any kind of transition phase. So it's almost like being an adolescent again and that sort of awkwardness of puberty before we get in, get used to our adult bodies. Or perhaps more poetically we could think of it as a phase of metamorphosis of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. And again with that image when the butterfly first emerges from the tight confines of the cocoon it needs to rest and to allow the soft structure of its wings to harden before it can fly. So if we do have this sense of transition at times, the best thing we can do is offer ourselves immense patience, kindness and compassion and to whatever extent we can, trust that we're, what, everything we're experiencing is part of a natural unfolding, is part of this process of awakening. So a couple of years ago, I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to mean meditation literally translates as getting used to it. And I imagine this idea of getting used to it can be interpreted in many different ways, but I've found it very helpful in relation to those phases of the practice where there is a sense of being in new territory of some kind. And then we think of meditation as simply getting used to it. Oh, getting used to this. Getting used to this. So getting used to it rather than forcing anything. And with the overall theme of this retreat being awakening our natural wisdom, Greg and I have really been emphasizing this relaxed approach, letting continuous mindfulness just do its work. So although the awakening factors are presented as a list, it's not about trying to tick them off one by one, like mindfulness, yep, got it, okay, investigation, yep, tick. What we really need at this stage of the practice is a very refined effort. So if we're approaching these awakening factors of, with the attitude that they're things we've got to do or we've got to have or to get, that very striving will interfere with their natural development. And the best thing we can really do is to keep getting out of the way. And there's a sutta in relation to this that illustrates the, this need to relax in relation to skillful states. It uses the analogy of a cow herder taking care of his cows. And it's making the point that depending on the conditions, 
the amount of effort needed to watch over the cows will be different at different times. So the first part of this text is talking about the phases of our practice when the hindrances are more predominant. It says, just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn season when the crops are ripening, a cowherd would look after his cows. He would tap and poke and check and curb them with a stick on this side and that. Why is that? Because he foresees flogging or imprisonment or a fine or public censure arising from that if he were to let his cows wander into the crops. And the Buddha says, in the same way, I foresaw in unskillful qualities drawbacks, degradation and defilement. So in this analogy, the Buddha is pointing to we need to, we do need to be aware of unskillful thoughts and pay close attention to them to make sure that they don't run rampant and get us into trouble. However, when uh, those unskillful qualities are reduced and the skillful qualities are more predominant, he says, this is like just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would look after his cows while resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open. He simply keeps himself mindfulness of those cows. In the same way, I simply kept myself mindful of those mental qualities. So this image of the cowherd lying in the shade of a tree and simply knowing those cows, those cows, it's a very relaxed image and we can in the same way relate to our mental qualities simply knowing that they're present and not needing to interfere with them in any way so i trust that all of you have been experiencing at least a few of these awakening factors during this retreat even if just for a few minutes at a time and even if they're not yet particularly strong perhaps just little buds, as Bhikkhu Analio likes to say. And I hope that having this overview of the awakening factors does give some sense of possibility or inspiration about where all of this practice is leading. And I'd like to close with one more passage from the suttas that's again attributed to the Buddha. And as you listen, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking very directly to you, because in a way he is. Just an invitation to take in these words as best you can. Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. 
If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what is skillful and conducive to benefit and pleasure, so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind, the complete destruction of suffering. Thank you for your attention. Let's uh, sit quietly for a few moments. <laughs> 